One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Man, Kirk Herbstreet is on the 30. phone. Here we go. This is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021, people. And as I told you on Monday, this is March, and it feels like March. Tuesday kind of had a March Madness feel to it, and we're going to talk about a lot of different variables from Tuesday night. That Baylor-West Virginia game might have been the game of the year. Uh, Illinois-Michigan might have been the biggest surprise of the year in terms of a result. We'll talk a little bit about some of the bubble games. Indiana, they are officially dead, not only as a program, but maybe as a state, as a school. I feel bad. I like that. I want them to be good, but they just stink. Duke also off the bubble. Kentucky stinks. We'll talk a little bit about them. Arkansas is awesome. Then what we will do is we will transition to two kind of different segments after that. The first one, what I want to do is I want to talk about a couple teams that may be a little bit off your radar that are warranting uh, consideration as deep NCAA tournament teams, teams that can make a deep run. We spend so much time talking Baylor, Gonzaga, Michigan, that there are other great teams. There are other teams worth mentioning, and so we'll get into them, and we will wrap with, how about this for a headline? Multiple SEC ADs this week talking about full college football stadiums in the fall. I'll talk a little bit about that, and I'll also talk about the fact that I kind of feel like the NCAA tournament may actually be the last event that we see kind of in this post-COVID world that looks completely different. I think we're finally starting to get back to normal, and so we will talk about that. But I do want to start with Tuesday's slate of college hoops. It was a loaded slate. It was a fun slate. And, And outside of the individual games, two things stood out to me. One it had, it had a feel of like a March Madness feel to it, right? We had the Baylor-West Virginia game. Shout out to ESPN. Listen, I can criticize ESPN for a lot of things. But to put that game on at 5 p.m. Eastern, start that game early. From there, you have Arkansas kind of starting, I think, at like 6.30 Eastern. From there, you go uh, to, to Michigan-Illinois. But having that early game leading into another game, leading into another game, leading into another game, It really did feel like kind of like the NCAA tournament. And then on top of that, let me just say this, and then we'll get into the individual games. I am so tired of all the people, oh, college basketball stinks. It's so bad. It's so awful. It was so much better back in my day. Let me tell you about the 90s when guys used to stay for three years. I bring that up because, listen, I understand that college basketball has its faults. First of all, the refereeing is terrible. We need to stop calling so many charges. But The one thing that I've noticed in college basketball is that by the time that we get to this time of year, the product always delivers. Now, I don't know what it was like in 1984 when Patrick Ewing was playing and Chris Mullen was playing and Pearl Washington was playing. But what I will say is that while the product isn't always great in November, December, January, it always gets there by March. We always get a great product. We always get great teams and we always get great games. And I think it's highlights and it segments perfectly or segues perfectly into the West Virginia Baylor game. For people who didn't have a chance to watch this, this was quite possibly, it was right up there with Michigan and Ohio State from a few weeks ago as the game of the year in college basketball. Just an insanely well-played game, back and forth, incredible shot-making. 
Uh, Baylor was up big. West Virginia comes back. Baylor falls down big. They come back one play after the other, after the other, after the other. Just because games go into overtime or they're close, it doesn't mean that they're good. This one was awesome and maybe the best game that I've seen all year. Very quickly, I do want to start with Baylor. Um, And just shout out to Baylor because the bottom line is we do know what Baylor has gone through. It has been a tumultuous year for this team dating back to before the season started when they were about to get on a plane to Mohegan Sun to play Arizona State and then maybe Villanova. And all of a sudden, they're not allowed to go because of a COVID test with Scott Drew. And from there, it feels like they've been spinning their wheels and they haven't gotten the credit that they deserve. They play really well, then they go on pause. They play really well, then another team cancels. They play really well. And so you get to this point in the season where they were finally starting to get acknowledged. And then, as you know, they went on a three-week COVID pause. And I don't think it's a secret that when they came back from COVID pause, as I talked about on Monday's show, they were not the same team. Not only was that my opinion, not only was it because they lost their first game, but it is an indisputable fact. They came out of the COVID pause averaging 87 points per game. The first two games back, Iowa State and then the loss to Kansas, they were scoring 67 a game. They were shooting 46% from three um, prior to the COVID pause. They shot 28% in those two games. And they also were forcing two fewer turnovers per game. So really it was the offense and defense. Baylor was not the same team coming out of COVID pause. Well, I think we can officially put that narrative to bed. Baylor starting to look like Baylor again in terms of a team that is uh, good enough to win a national championship. And so when I look at this game, first of all, it, it is a testament to Baylor how this game was even announced and how it was called. And let me explain why. Because I, I love Fran Fraschilla. He's a good friend of mine. I talk to him all the time. Not all the time, but I talk to him enough. I think he's incredible at what he does. Bob was shoes I don't know, but he was the other broadcaster. They spent the entire game talking about, well, Baylor's just, they're not where they need to be and they're not where they were before the COVID pause and I don't necessarily think they were wrong but they were saying this when Baylor was up by one two three points down one two three points at the number six team in the country in West Virginia and so that is a testament right there to how good Baylor was pre-COVID pause that they could be up on the road against the top 10 team and the announcers are talking about how much work they have to do and how far they have to go to get back to where they were. But what I would say is that in this game, they finally looked like the Baylor from the first, whatever, two and a half, three months of the season. First of all, shout out to Jared Butler. Uh, This kid was phenomenal in this game. He finished with 25 points. He hit the shot that forced overtime, five for 11 from three. He played like an All-American. He was my preseason national player of the year. He's not going to get there because the team just hasn't played enough games, but he'll probably end up winning Big 12 player of the year. But he was phenomenal. Matt Meyer, I keep calling him Matt Mayer. I think I've been calling him Matt Mayer. But he has 16, 18 points off the bench. He is unbelievable. And like I said, the shot making in this game was through the roof. But more importantly, this just felt like the game that Baylor said, okay, we're back. We saw what you said about Michigan. We saw what you said about Gonzaga. We saw what you said about us after the Kansas game, how we're not the same. And that is exactly what I saw in this game. It was about as impressive of a win as you can imagine. Because sometimes in sports, 
you know, two teams play and, and there's a result and there's a winner and a loser. But this felt like an NCAA tournament game from the perspective that it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. As I said, incredible shot making. And you felt like, I feel bad for the team that loses. Nobody deserves to lose this game. These two teams are awesome. And so for Baylor to triumph, I thought it was their single best win of the season in a season where they've been absolutely incredible. But for them to be a week removed from COVID pause, coming off their worst loss, their only loss of the season, excuse me, going on the road to a West Virginia team that's playing really well, and I will talk about West Virginia in a minute, and to get that win in the way that it happened was just phenomenal. They had the mental toughness to get the win. They had the physical toughness to get the win. West Virginia did not play poorly in this game. West Virginia threw every haymaker and punch and swing that they had at Baylor, and they were able to come out with the victory. So I don't want to belabor the point anymore. I don't want to spend too much more time talking about this because I don't think I need to. But this was one of the best games that I've seen all year. Uh, it was one of the most well-played games that I've seen all year. And I just thought it was where Baylor reestablished itself on on the national stage to basically say like look whatever you thought you knew about us after that loss to to Kansas the other night no 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 we're back we're playing well and here's the scary part now that they got their legs back under them it's only going to get better tough couple games ahead they play uh Oklahoma State and Texas Tech in the coming days but I'm telling you man that looked like the team that I saw early in the season and I really do believe that they are back to playing their best basketball, and that was one of the best wins that they have had all season long. Really quickly on West Virginia, I actually don't want to spend too much time on them here because, kind of spoiler, they're one of the four teams that I think that you need to watch out for in your bracket, even though they're ranked number six in the country. Uh, they're a team that I don't think has gotten enough love this year. But I will say, like, like I think they're legitimately awesome. And I think that two things, I would say two things can be true. Well, one thing can be true here, and that's just because they lost this game doesn't mean they played poorly or even that they necessarily deserve to lose. But unfortunately, when you tie up, when you tie up the laces and, and throw the ball up in the air, only one team can come away with a win, and West Virginia was not on the right side of it. The thing that stands out to me, and I'm going to talk about it more in a minute, but this team has as much scoring as any West Virginia team that I have seen since the Bob Huggins era began. And when I look at this team and how they're going to match up with people, they can get scoring from so many different spots on the floor. Miles McBride had 20-something tonight, and it was a quiet 20-something. Sean McNeil had 18 points, four three-pointers. Uh, Taz Sherman was awesome. And you just look at this team, and I just think that, that to me, I, I mentioned it a minute ago, but the broadcaster spent the whole game talking about, oh, Baylor's got to get right. Baylor's got to do this. Baylor's got to do that. How about we just give a little credit to West Virginia? They were freaking awesome. They played the game of their season, the best game that they've played all year, and came up a little bit short. So I'm going to talk about Baylor more in the teams that you need to watch, but I just want to give them a little bit of credit here because I think they do deserve it. Really quickly, transitioning to the other big game from Tuesday night, Illinois at Michigan. I mean, I think you can legitimately make the case that this is the single most surprising result of the year as just before tip-off, we find out that Illinois point guard Io DeSumo, All-American, he would have been my national player of the year had he not gotten hurt. He can't play. And you think, okay, this is going to be Michigan rolling. They've rolled everybody. They basically haven't had an off night all year. Instead, the exact opposite happens. Illinois steamrolls them 76-53 to in a game that nobody could have seen coming. 
And so when I look at this game, a couple things stand out. First of all, part of this is about Michigan. Now I don't think this is some big, oh my God, Michigan's falling apart. They're terrible. Uh, throw dirt on their grave. That's not what this is about. But this was the first time all season long that I saw somebody straight up punk Michigan. And the thing with Michigan that they have always done, they have a maturity about them, they show up ready to play, and they're physical and they're tough. I mean, they out-toughed Luca Garza the other day in Iowa. They've out-toughed Wisconsin. They out-toughed Purdue. And Illinois just came in and brought it to them. And I don't think Michigan, I don't know whether it was because Io DeSumo wasn't playing, whether there was some other reason but because they're playing their rival Michigan State in a couple days, although I can't imagine that that's it. Michigan just wasn't ready to play. And I have not seen them all season long get punked the way that they got punked by Illinois on Tuesday night. I would say this, if you want a reflection of how bad this was, how about this? Illinois doubled up Michigan in terms of rebounds. Illinois out-rebounded Michigan 42-26. to Michigan's the number two ranked rebounding team in the country. And Illinois doubled them up. So if you need any reason to understand why this game played out the way that it did, that's, that's the reason why right there. Michigan didn't come ready to play. Now, we also got to give some credit to Illinois. And I'll give some other credit to my intern, Zach, because when Io DeSumo went out with his injury, my, my, my intern, Zach, told me straight up, he goes, dude, just watch. This is going to be the best thing that ever happened to Illinois because it's going to force other people to step up. Shout out, intern, Zach, because you freaking nailed it, my man. Um, Illinois, it's just, it's incredible how well they've played without Io DeSumo. And so you look at what they're doing. One, it's, it's a team effort. Uh, they got contribution from just about everybody that played. They got the young freshman, Andre Curbelos, originally from Puerto Rico. He plays fearlessly. He was awesome. And he is going to continue the success of uh, Illinois going forward. But I look at Illinois, and all of a sudden, man, and I'm not, you know, we do this all the time. It was Baylor and Gonzaga. Then it was Baylor and Gonzaga in Michigan. And like, but I think Illinois is basically right there. I mean, you talk about a team that is only going to get better and more confident as Io DeSumo comes back. Like, I'm just telling you, man, this is a team like, like I'm going to Vegas later this week. And this is a team that coming into this one, they have now, or excuse me, coming out of this one, they've won six out of seven um, in in this stretch. They obviously beat Wisconsin without Io DeSumo. They now win at Michigan without Io DeSumo. The only loss was that weird Michigan State game that nobody saw coming. And I'm just telling you, I mean, as far as teams that are outside that top three that can actually win it all, I think Illinois is that team. But I just thought it was an incredible effort and an incredible uh, performance by Illinois because I was just so, so, so impressed by how well they played without Io DeSumo on Tuesday night. Really quickly, some other results, and then we will get to my teams that you need to watch for come tournament time. Uh, busy night, like I said. Uh, first of all, shout out to Arkansas. They have now won 10 straight SEC games. I, I, I'll talk about it later on because they are another one of the four teams that you need to watch out for. But Arkansas has won 10 straight SEC games for the first time since 1993-94. Uh, they won the national championship that year. Not saying it's going to happen, but they're playing about as well as anybody. I also thought Tuesday night Moses Moody 
just about wrapped up SEC Freshman of the Year. 28 points for him. He's averaging 17 a game. He's shooting about 37% from three. And with due respect to Cam Thomas, Sharif Cooper, whoever, I do think that Arkansas uh, is a team that is playing better. And I think Moses Moody should be your SEC Freshman of the Year. Uh, I don't know what else to say about them. They're awesome. I talk about them all the time, but they're a fun, fun, fun team to watch. They're playing really well, and when you put up 101 points on a Frank Martin coach team, you know you're doing things right. As far as everything else on Tuesday night, first off, uh, Duke ended up losing in overtime to Georgia Tech. Not going to lie, I bet Georgia Tech in this game, it was a wild ride. They should have won in regulation. They should have won by about eight in overtime, but they did seal the victory. The Shield, Josh Passner gets the W, and Duke is officially now in basically back-against-the-wall mode. Uh, They're going to have to win at North Carolina and then win several games in the ACC tournament. They are now 11-10 overall. I uh, just don't see this thing ending well for them. It ends in the NIT if, in fact, they even get to the NIT or they accept an NIT invitation. But I'm just telling you, uh, they are not playing very well right now. After that big run post-Jalen Johnson, they have now lost their last two uh, what else from Tuesday night? Uh, Purdue, really solid win over Wisconsin. I'm telling you right now, just sell all your Wisconsin stock. They stink. Um, I was telling a buddy. Uh, I was telling a buddy with Wisconsin. I don't know that they, 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 that they do anything well. What we give them credit for is, oh, they don't beat themselves. But it's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter if you if you don't beat yourself. It doesn't matter if you can't actually do things to win games. Like, it's great they don't turn the ball over, but they don't rebound. They don't have creators. They can't score. They have now lost, what was it? Uh, They're 4-7 and in their last 11 games overall, so sell your Wisconsin stock. Purdue, really solid team. Believe it or not, Purdue's actually in line to get a double bye at the Big Ten tournament. The top four teams get a double bye. And while everybody loves Ohio State, guess what? The four teams that are in position to get those double buys are Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, and Purdue. Ohio State, which could be a number one seed, might not even get a buy in its own tournament. So good win for Purdue. Bad win for Wisconsin. Speaking of bad win, Kentucky, I'm done. I'm not going to keep talking about them. I really did think, and I think I said it on Monday's show, the Florida game took the wind out of their sails. They were playing really well. Then they had a game canceled because of COVID, and I don't think they picked back up from where they were. Uh, they're just not they're just not a very good team. And and Jimmy Dykes and Carl Ravage talked a lot about it during the broadcast, but they don't have a playmaker. They don't have a difference maker. They don't have a guy that they can give the ball to and just go get a bucket. And it's kind of crazy, right? You watch Baylor, they got five of those guys. You watch Michigan, they got two or three of those guys. Illinois has two or three of those guys. Kentucky has none of them. And I don't know what the answer is for them. I don't know where they go because you start looking at the high school ranks, they're probably not going to get any of the elite high school players remaining. Uh, and the transfer ranks, it's always hit or miss. Maybe you get a Carleek Jones, like the kid that ended up at Louisville, who's like an ACC Player of the Year candidate. But a lot of times it's hard to find players in the transfer portal that can step in at a place like Kentucky and have immediate success. I do think next year they will be better under normal circumstances, no COVID, all that stuff. But I'm just telling you right now, straight up, uh, this team is not very good, and they're going to have a lot of holes coming into next year. I do think they get it figured out. I do think you got to give Calipari a full offseason, but they're not very good right now. I will be curious, by the way, to see who ends up leaving this offseason. I saw my buddy Matt Jones make the case that B.J. Boston should come back. I know it won't happen, but I do agree with Matt. B.J. Boston is so not ready for professional basketball, and he's a kid that I really do think, if he came back, could play his way back into early lottery position with a good year next year. Final game 
from uh, from Tuesday night. Oh, Indiana. Indiana, Indiana, Indiana. They lose at Michigan State. Indiana is now 12-13 and 13 overall this season. First of all, shout-out to Michigan State. T- game that they needed, game that obviously Indiana needed. But Indiana, man... I'm telling you, they are now 12 and 13 overall, 7 and 11 in Big Ten play. They have now lost four in a row, and they've lost five of six. It was kind of crazy. They were go- coming in. They played in uh, Michigan State two weeks ago. They were 12 and nine coming in, and I think just about everybody felt like, okay, if they just win this game, they're gonna they, they just, they'll clinch an NCAA tournament spot. At that point, they'd be 13 and nine overall. Instead, they lose that game. They've lost three straight. And I don't know what else to say. I like Archie Miller. I wish him the best. This thing ain't working, though. It's year four. I talked about it. If you missed it on last podcast, there was some real buzz that he might not be back next year. And so I'm just telling you right now straight up, uh, be prepared because that job could open up. It would be interesting to see who they could get. I think John Beeline's really the only guy that would appease everybody. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. But they stink right now. They lose again. And I think like Duke, they're in, they got to win multiple games in their conference tournament. It'd be nice, by the way, if they beat Purdue this week. I don't think they're going to. But they got to win multiple games in their conference tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. And that's really what happened on Tuesday night. So, yeah, really fun day in college hoops. And it, like I said, it did have a little bit of an NCAA tournament feel to it. Uh, the Baylor-West Virginia game starting early. That leads into the Arkansas game. Once the Baylor game goes final, the Arkansas game is hitting the final few minutes. Then we got the start of the Illinois-Michigan game. We got Duke and Georgia Tech going to overtime. Wisconsin-Purdue coming out to the wire. Just a really fun day in college basketball overall. But watching those games, seeing Illinois dominate Michigan, seeing West Virginia go toe-for-toe, minute-for-minute, play-for-play with, with Baylor... It did make me realize something uh, about the way that we've covered college basketball this year here in the media. And when I say we, I absolutely include myself because I'm absolutely guilty of this. But I do think for most of the college basketball season, we have spent all of our time, all of our oxygen, the entire conversation has been on the really good teams and the really bad teams. We spent a ton of time talking about Baylor, Gonzaga, Michigan. How do they get so good? Can you beat them? How do you beat them? What do you do? Is it possible? Then we talk about the really bad teams. Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina struggling. Michigan State wasn't very good up until a few weeks ago. Kansas wasn't very good up until a few weeks ago. Indiana stinks again. And we've done such a bad job. We've talked about the really good teams and the really bad teams. But we've done a really poor job of talking about all the other teams. There's 300-something other teams besides Baylor, Michigan, and Gonzaga, and Kentucky, Duke, Michigan State, North Carolina, and Kansas. And so what I want to do now is highlight some teams that I think are really good and are still, all things considered, flying under the radar. Now, I'll skip Illinois because they're awesome. We know about that. Uh, And I'll skip some other teams, Ohio State that's been in the mix, Iowa. I feel like people talk about Iowa a lot. But I want to give you four teams that I think can legitimately make a run to a Final Four this year because I do feel like even if... Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan are awesome. Guess what? There's still going to be another team in the Final Four. And I do want to feature and highlight four teams that probably haven't gotten enough respect throughout the course of the season. First one, I actually just talked about them about 10, 15 minutes ago. It is the West Virginia Mountaineers. 
I know they came into the day number six in the country. I know that you're probably sitting there thinking, Torres, of course, how could you put, uh, of course the number six team in the country is capable of making a deep run. But I just feel like this team hasn't gotten credit for how well they have played as of late. Keep in mind, even within the Big 12, everybody's talking about Baylor. Kansas is coming on strong. Early in the year, Texas was one of the better, one of the better stories. Texas Tech seems to always play interesting games. Oklahoma State is always interesting. And West Virginia has kind of, I feel like, flown under the radar, all while playing really good basketball. If you've watched them, they've been eight and two over their last ten prior to, to Monday night or to Tuesday night against Baylor. And they've beaten some really good teams and they're playing really good basketball. And what's really interesting to me is that they do it in a completely different way than they've really ever done it under Bob Huggins. And I do wonder for people who had not seen West Virginia play, including maybe some of you guys listening to this podcast, if you haven't seen West Virginia play, I wonder how eye-opening it was to watch them on Tuesday against Baylor, where we think this big, burly, physical team that just wants to beat you up. And since Oscar Shibway left, since he transferred to Kentucky in the middle of the season, this is a program that is very much, they look like a modern basketball team. They play four guards, shoot a lot of threes, one big guy down low, Derek Culver, and I look at this team and how explosive they are offensively, and I think they're going to be really dangerous in this bracket come two weeks in March on Selection Sunday. This is a team that, as you saw on Tuesday, three legitimate scores. Miles McBride, Deuce McBride, I believe is one of the most underrated players in college basketball, had 19 points on Tuesday night, averaging 16 per game. He's dead-eye. He makes big shots. Speaking of dead-eye, Sean McNeil, the kid that just went off against Baylor, shooting 39% from three. And then Taz Sherman, speaking of going off, 26 points for that kid. And so I just look at this team. They're battle-tested. They've played well in the Big 12. They're tough. They're mentally tough. If you can beat Baylor the way that Baylor played or nearly beat them, you can play with just about anybody. And that's a team I know they're probably going to be about a three seed, but they get the right bracket. I think they're going deep. Second team, also in the Big 12. I think Oklahoma State is one of the craziest, most surreal stories that I don't think anybody is talking about right now. First of all, for people who don't know the background, I had Mike Boynton on the show last week. A lot of you think, well, they can't even make the NCAA tournament. Well, here's the deal. They were given a one-year postseason ban last offseason, but they appealed it to the NCAA, and as of right now, the NCAA has not told them that they are ineligible for this year's tournament. The appeal process is still going on, and as I record here late Tuesday night, it really does feel like the NCAA might just bury their heads in the sand and let Oklahoma State play in the NCAA tournament. Whether it's because they want Oklahoma State in because of Cade Cunningham, whether it's because they believe they're a deserving team, whether the NCAA knows the punishment was nonsense, and if you look at the facts, it was it does appear the NCAA might just kind of keep their mouth shut and not say anything and let Oklahoma State play. I had their coach Mike Boynton on the podcast last week, and he said point blank, he's like, dude, we have two road games to end the season, and then we're planning on going to KC for the, for the Big 12 tournament, and if we're one of those 68 teams, we're going to Indy. He said, when I pack my bags, I'm packing and, be, and planning on being on the road for a month. So I look at Oklahoma State, they're going to the NCAA tournament, baby, at least as of right now. And I think they're playing better than most people realize. 17 and 6 overall. Can you believe this, guys? Coming into Tuesday, 
they were tied for the most quad one wins in college basketball. And for people who don't remember what quad one wins are, they are the best wins in the computers that the NCAA uses to pick NCAA tournament teams. Quad one wins are the best possible wins that you can get. Oklahoma State actually tied for the most quad one wins. Look at their resume. It's kind of unbelievable. 17 and 6 overall. They swept Oklahoma, which is a top 15 team. They swept Texas Tech, which is a top 20 team. Arkansas, which is awesome. We're going to talk about them in a minute. Uh, Guess what? Arkansas, their last loss was to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State beat Kansas. And so when I look at this Oklahoma State team, are they going to be scared? By the way, I should mention three of their six losses or four of their six losses, excuse me, were by three points or less. So when they when they play, even when they lose, they play competitive games. One of the games that wasn't close was Baylor and nobody plays Baylor tough. And so I bring it all up. And by the way, the game, the game they played Baylor, they didn't even have Cade Cunningham. But I bring it up because you look at those wins. Sweep of Texas Tech, sweep of Oklahoma, beat Arkansas, beat Kansas. You think they're going to be afraid of anybody come NCAA tournament time? Because I sure don't. Imagine, them, imagine having them as the five seed in your region. And what I would say really quick on Oklahoma State that's worth noting, this isn't just about Cade Cunningham. This is not just about Cade Cunningham. They have gotten awesome production from across the board outside of Cade Cunningham on this team. Caleb Boone, the big guy, had 18 points the other day against uh, against Oklahoma in the second half of Bedlam. Bryce Williams, a transfer from Ole Miss, has played well. Avery Anderson has played well. Rondell Walker has played well. So shout out to Oklahoma State because I believe that they're playing better than anybody realizes and are a really, really awesome team right now. Third team, talk about them a lot. Have their coach on this show a lot. Hate to brag. I hitched my wagon to Eric Musselman early, and I'm looking pretty smart. Arkansas currently, as I record here, in the top 15. They are on a 10-game winning streak in the SEC, which is the longest since 1993-94. Not sure if you know what happened. They won the national championship that year and are 20-5 and overall and in second place in the SEC. I think you can argue right now that Arkansas is playing as well as anybody in college basketball. I'm not saying they're better than Gonzaga. I'm not saying they're better than Baylor. But over the last three weeks, I don't think anybody is playing as well as Arkansas heading into the home stretch of the season. I talk about them enough. You know their personnel. But I think what's been most important is, as I've said many times, when they've been healthy, they've basically been unbeatable. Justin Smith, their best player, missed three of their four early season losses in the SEC. Um, and and, and with, with him back in the lineup, they're just a completely different roster. But basically, the only loss that they've had at 100% full strength was against Oklahoma State. I know technically he was back for the Alabama game, but he was basically playing on one foot. So I look at Arkansas, and they put up 101 points at South Carolina on Tuesday night. What doesn't this team have? Size, shooting, athleticism, switchable, as I talked about after the Alabama game. They play, uh, they're starting to play better defense than they did early in the season. This is a fun, dynamic, awesome team that you have to watch. The fourth team, a little bit of a cop-out. I'm not going to lie. It is Florida State. And look, I, I, I mean, it's a cop-out because they're leading the ACC. They're going to be the a- ACC regular season champs. 
But I do feel like I need to give Florida State a little bit of credit here. I mean, this is a team that just still does not get talked about on the national scale, but they enter a game on Wednesday night against BC, 14-4 and overall. They're going to clinch the number one seed in the SEC if they win their two games against Boston College and Notre Dame. And I just look at this team and I say, I just don't want to see them in the NCAA tournament. And, and I think the facts kind of reflect that. Because if you look at their production, so, so first of all, for people who haven't seen them play this year, they're the same team as always. They go about 9-10 deep. They're going to press the crap out of you. They're going to give you hell. They're going to create chaos. And when I look at this team, what I see is just a team that is impossible to prepare for on two days notice in an NCAA tournament. And that's really what I look for when I look for teams that can advance in matchups and things like that. There are certain teams that like, you know, you could, you could, like, I'll give you an example. Ohio State. I'm not a huge Ohio State guy. I like them. I don't love them. I don't think they do anything particularly great. I don't think there's anything that they do particularly unique that is really tough to prepare for, right? Like, I'll give you an example. Houston, their physicality is really, it's hard to prepare for Houston's physicality on one or two days notice. It's hard to prepare for Alabama's three-point shooting on one or two days notice. It's not really that hard to prepare for Ohio State because they don't do anything great. And when I look at Florida State, this all comes back to Florida State, they are the type of team that I just feel like they're so athletic, they're so long, they get so into you on defense. I don't know how you prepare for that team on one or two days notice. So they are the team that I do believe that you just do not want to see in your bracket. Those are the four teams. I'm telling you, we talked a lot about Gonzaga, we talked a lot about Baylor, we talked a lot about Michigan, but the four teams that I do not want to see in my bracket come Selection Sunday are West Virginia, Oklahoma State, Arkansas, and Florida State. All right, I do want to wrap on one little topic here that's really a topic that kind of combines two, three, four stories and it has to do with kind of COVID-19, uh, sports, where we are, where we're going, all that stuff. And it's funny, right, because on Monday's episode, I did talk a lot about the NCAA tournament, how different it is going to look this year, all the different changes and alterations to the tournament that we know and love to make sure that it goes off without a hitch in March. Teams might get replaced, teams might get eliminated, teams might get whatever. But the bottom line is the NCAA tournament is happening, which is a positive but as I was thinking about the NCAA tournament as a whole, something really struck me as I was kind of thinking and talking about the NCAA tournament over the last couple of days. I truly believe that the NCAA tournament is probably the last major sporting event on our calendar that looks completely different than it did pre-COVID. And I'm not saying that we're going to have full major, league, you know, full fans in the stands for Major League Baseball. I'm not saying that we're going to have, uh, you know, full gallery for the Masters. But I do think that we're trending in the right direction. And two stories kind of hit home for me that bring this together. One of them is unfortunately negative. One is, of course, positive. And I want to start with the negative one. And sometimes you have to start in a bad place to eventually get to a good place. And so let me start in the most obscure place that I possibly could, and that is with Holy Cross basketball, the Crusaders. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Torres, why are you talking Holy Cross basketball? Well, I want to talk about their great three-point shooting. I want to talk about their rebounding mark. No, I'm kidding. I'm not talking about that crap. Who cares? The reason I am talking about Holy Cross first and last time is because on Tuesday, their season ended. But unlike 
Duke and Kentucky and Carolina and Kansas and Baylor, all those teams, their season will almost certainly end on the court somewhere. A conference tournament, an NCAA tournament, whatever. That is not the case for Holy Cross. Holy Cross's season ended on Tuesday because they had one single positive COVID case within their basketball program. Because of it, they had to shut their basketball program down. They had to go on a two-week pause right before the conference tournament. Well, guess what? Conference tournament is getting played without them. They had to essentially forfeit. It's not called a forfeit, but they forfeited. Loyola of Maryland is allowed to advance. And just like that, Holy Cross, a year's worth of work, is down the drain, and they don't even get a chance to compete for their conference title because of one positive COVID case. Not 10, not 15, not even seven or eight. One positive COVID case. And so on the negative side, I am so frustrated that a year removed, we are now almost exactly one full year removed from when the whole world shut down, Rudy Gobert, all that stuff. The fact that we are one year removed and we are still shutting down an entire basketball program for one positive COVID case is mind-boggling to me. It makes no sense. And I get it. And for the record, I've been talking about this stuff since April and May of last year. I don't claim to be an expert. I don't claim to have all the answers. What I do claim to do, though, do a lot of research, talk to smart people, uh, inform myself, use facts and not opinion. And what I can tell you is we shouldn't be shutting down an entire basketball program because of one positive COVID test. I feel bad for whoever the person was. Yes, it's okay to isolate that person. If it's a player and they have a roommate, it's okay. But at this point, it's almost certain that there's not going to be a major spread because one guy was playing five-on-five with other guys in practice. And so when I look at where we are right now and the fact that this Holy Cross basketball team, their entire season is now over because of one positive COVID test, it just frustrates me so much because this is a college basketball program. None of these guys are going to play in the NBA, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, You know, you only get four years of college basketball, and I know they get the extra year and all that stuff, but it's just not the same. And to have this team have their season end over a positive test where we are now in the world, in society, is so frustrating to me. That's the bad news. Now, I do think there's a couple silver linings with all this. The first one is that, as I talked about on Monday's episode, the NCAA tournament will not have games canceled over one positive COVID test. That is very important. That is a very important distinction. Obviously, I feel terrible for Holy Cross. I wouldn't have talked about him otherwise, but I bring it up because the NCAA tournament, as I said on Monday's show, they are, to their credit, the NCAA has done a great job of setting up protocols to make sure that there are no contact tracing issues, there are no play, there's limited spread if somebody does test positive, and that games will be able to go off without a hitch. Talked about it on Monday, don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but the way the teams are traveling... The fact that they're wearing those little wristbands that tell them if they've been in close contact with anybody, it should ensure that once teams get to Indianapolis, there's no major spread. Doesn't mean a player can't test positive, doesn't mean a coach can't test positive, but the idea that we're going to be pulling a bunch of teams out of the NCAA tournament, I don't believe is going to happen, and I think that's obviously a great thing. So that's silver lining number one. I already talked about it. If you don't know the details, go back and listen to Monday's episode. But two... I want to talk about another story that leads me to believe that we are actually closer to the finish line, that we are actually pretty close to normalcy in sports, and that we are actually back to getting back to our normal lives. And that came on, I guess it was Monday night, when Alabama AD Greg Byrne was asked about what Alabama football was going to look like next year. And he said, well, I want to be honest. 
we're planning on having 100% capacity for our football games next year. And that followed up the similar, uh, similar sentiments from Ross Bjork, the, head, uh, the, the AD at Texas A&M. South Carolina's AD, Ray Tanner, said the same. And so when I saw that, and keep in mind, by the way, these schools have to start planning for the fall now. Season ticket renewals are up. Uh, you know, uh, donations are up right now. So team, schools have to start planning for the fall right now. And Alabama, Texas A&M, and South Carolina all said within the last week that they plan on having fans in the stands, 100% capacity for college football in the fall. Now, is it 100% certain? Who knows? Is it possible that you have to wear a mask? Of course. Is it possible that they'll be at 75% instead of 100% or that yeah, who knows what the, the protocols could be? Nothing is guaranteed, but the fact that such public facing figures are willing to say up close, you know, up front and just brutally honest right now here in March that they plan on having full fans in the stands for college football is a great sign that we are starting to get back to normal. But this really does go back to what I just said a minute ago, which is that I believe that the NCAA tournament is actually probably the last major sporting event that we have that looks nothing like what we had pre-COVID. Again, not saying we're going to have 100% capacity for Major League Baseball. Not saying we're going to have 100% capacity for golf. But what I am saying, the Masters, whatever. But what I am saying is I think we're finally getting back to that point of normalcy. And the reason I kind of use the NCA as a jumping off point of, uh, you know, what the current norm is versus what the future norm will be, which is actually the norm pre-COVID, is because we have to think about the NCA when this NCA tournament was put together. Never forget, this NCA tournament started coming together way back in the fall, September, October, November. If you remember way back to those days, it feels like a billion years ago. But at that time, kind of the focus of what? July, August, September, was get, figure out a way to get college football on the field. Figure out a way to get college football on the field safely, test, do everything that we need to do to get college football on the field safely. And then as soon as we saw, you know what, we can play college football, we started trying to figure out this NCAA tournament. But this whole NCAA tournament was put together kind of in October, November, maybe early December, at a time where the world was so different um, with, with kind of COVID and, and how we reacted and what we thought and all that kind of stuff. And I bring it up because it's important. You have to understand the context of when the NCAA tournament was put together. It was during a time where we still didn't know when we were going to get out of this. We still didn't know if there was going to be a vaccine. We, didn't, we still didn't know uh, a lot of the things that we know now. And so when the NCAA tournament, when the NCAA put this tournament together, we know exactly what they did. They said, hey, we just got to get 68 teams to one place and figure it out from there. We can't worry about fans. We can't worry about this. We can't worry about that. We just have to play a tournament because, one, everybody else has figured it out, so we got to figure it out. And, two, as you guys know, when the NCAA tournament was canceled last year, it cost a lot of people a lot of money. The NCAA lost over a billion dollars, and they basically decided, look, we can't miss a tournament for a second straight year. So that is when the NCAA tournament was put together uh, and, and kind of this idea came together last fall. But what's important to think about is where we are now and the fact that as we get ready for Major League Baseball, as we get ready for many of the summer golf tournaments, as we get ready for college football in the NFL, we now have new data that says, okay, it's time to start getting back to normal. First of all, it's great news. Obviously, we all know the vaccine has rolled out. Uh, I don't claim to be a vaccine expert. I'm not in the demographic that is allowed to get it yet. But I can tell you, I live in California, the place where the vaccine rollout has been the worst. And credit to California, because guess what? 
My father-in-law, who's in his 70s, was able to get his first dose last week. My mom, who's not in California, but was able to get her first dose uh, a few days ago. And she's in her late 60s. And so you think about how far we've come just since, say, January 1, and how far we could be, say, uh, whatever, uh, uh, two months from now as we start preparing for college football in the NFL, it's a great sign. I would also say, by the way, sentiment has completely changed. You guys know where I've been from the beginning. I haven't really changed my life all that much. I've eaten out in restaurants when I'm allowed. <laughs> I went to Vegas uh, two weeks after it reopened in June. I'm actually going back to Vegas later this week, so look for me there. Um, and beyond that, though, I, I think the sentiment has changed publicly. It's not just people like me saying we need to get back to normal. I was the guy in July, August, September saying it's safe to live a semi-normal life. We can be responsible without shutting down the whole world. Well, now I feel like the rest of the world is there. Like I said, I, you know, I flew back to Connecticut a few weeks ago, full airplane. People were respectful of each other, but guess what? The airplane was still full. I come home from work on Saturday night, Fox Sports Radio, about 11 o'clock, drive down the main drag where I live. Every restaurant is packed with people still eating at 11 o'clock at night. Um, and so, oh, by the way, I didn't even mention, um, some of you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw, but I live not far from a private school, and I sent out a tweet the other day about the fact that the private school had uh, students on campus, and it, uh, all, all, just basically the fact that private schools are open but public schools aren't is ridiculous. Six months ago, I would have gotten major pushback on that. I didn't get it this time. So that's all the long-winded way of me saying, from Holy Cross basketball to private schools in California, it is a way of me saying... I truly believe that the NCAA tournament is the last major sporting event that is going to look different. We have come a long way. I'm proud of all of us for being responsible, for being respectful of others. But when I look at the world now, when I look at the fact that we're now in March, we're going to start planning for the fall, the fact that most major college football programs are planning on having fans in the stands, it gives me a great feeling that we are finally, 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 finally starting to get back to normal. And that sports by the fall will hopefully be normal. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aratora Sports Podcast. Sorry to go from Holy Cross basketball to vaccinating children in private schools, whatever. But I, listen, I do think these are important topics. And I'll be honest, I'm excited to potentially get to some football games in the fall. I'm obviously excited for you guys to have the chance to get to some college football games in the fall. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's it for today's show. I want to thank you guys for listening. Make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Make sure to rate and review the show. By the way, I haven't read any ratings and reviews lately, so let me give a quick shout out. Uh, we'll do one each of the next two episodes. Let me start with Cowgirl65, who says, "Great cow." Excuse me, great college basketball analysis. I love when Aaron talks college basketball. I don't hold the fact that he's a, a UConn fan against him. Great listen. Subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy Big East Hoop. So thank you to CalGirl65 and everybody else. Do me a favor. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. It really does help us move up those iTunes charts. And as I always tell you, if you're not following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, you can find us on the YouTube page, and we got some good stuff coming up. Stay tuned because uh, we're working with uh, Bracket Fanatics on a really cool bracket giveaway for you guys. We're going to have tons of great prizes, so make sure you're, you're tuned in for that. Um, and that's really it. So that's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice, and she really does hate my voice. Uh, that, Rachel, what are we going to do with her? I will be back on Thursday with a new Aaron Torres Pod.